happy hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz. <laughs> yes. Um, before we get to our very exciting guest, we're very honored to have him on. We have to start with our usual opening. This day in the 1980s, greatest decade ever, the greatest generation, Gen X. Are, are you ready? I am sitting down and I'm ready. <laughs> okay. On this day in 1982, Don Henley's Dirty Laundry hits number one on the Billboard mainstream rock chart. I thought that song was later for some reason. I really I was. You, I didn't I like it. I myself. Did you like not. it? I never really liked it. I loved it because then I got into broadcast journalism a few years later in college. So I thought that was like my theme song. But. Okay. Maybe that's why I thought it was later on. Uh, But it was. Yes. In 1989, Look Who's Talking opens at number one, the movie. That was a cute movie. It was. Do you remember when we we would all watch the same movies, like, and then talk about them? Yes. Like, we would actually go to the movies, like, everyone. Yeah. And then your parents would go, and you actually had things to talk about in common. Wow. God, that's the the olden times. Um, okay, this is a bad one. 1986, Rick Ocasek of the Cars, Emotions in Motion. Ugh, no. Pass. That was bad. That was a bad one. Um, and let, let's get to the music, because that's what we love the most, right? Yes. Oh, so there were some really good tunes topping the charts this week in the 1980s. 1980, Another One Bites the Dust. That's a great Na- song. 1982, Jack and Diane. Oh, another great song. Um, ooh, 1988, Red, Red Wine. That's not a good one. Oh, come on. That's a great song. Stop You it. of all people should like well, that. Well, that's song. true. <laughs> <laughs> kind of is my theme song, but anyway. So hopefully that will give everyone their fix. I have a column up today, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Hopefully about why Gen X hates Joe Biden and the Democrats. <laughs> all the polling coming out I mean these are not just like this isn't like a slim margin right these are overwhelming overwhelmingly bad numbers for Joe Biden and the Democrats in Gen X it's obvious which generation is the best generation when you look at the these numbers based by age cohort and it's our generation so introduce our guest because I think he's one of us I hope so John Solomon, are you a Gen Xer? We'll make you an honor if you're not. I absolutely am. I went to high school and college in the 1980s, and I was just having great flashbacks. It was awesome. <laughs> what year were you born? I was born 1967. 67. I'm 68. Liz, were you 67? I'm 70. Ah. <clears throat> so what was interesting, John, in this paper that I link in my piece, they said the most conservative Americans are those born in the mid to late 1960s. Yeah, I, you know, I think it was a reaction to the fact that we grew up around a very liberal beginning in our careers, right? We had the the uh, all of the craziness of the 60s and 70s and the flower children of Woodstock and we had Jimmy Carter. And, and then our conscious time came as Ronald Reagan and that made a lot of people, I think, conservative and common sense. And I think a lot of us crave those days when we see the world we're living in today. 
John, that is the one of the words I use. I'm so glad you said it because I'm like, this is the world we crave to get back for yeah. ourselves, but for our children, especially. Yeah, no, we're fighting for future generations. That's absolutely what's at stake in these next two elections and what's at stake in every aspect of our, how we navigate the next couple of years in history, in the world, and certainly in our own government. Well, we are huge fans of your work, as I'm sure our listeners are as well. You just do some of the best investigative reporting and have done that for years. So we're so excited and honored to have you on. There's lots to talk about um, related to breaking news in your wheelhouse. So, Liz, do you want to get started? Um, Well, I just saw on Twitter from Margot Cleveland that the repair store owner is suing Hunter Biden and the Biden campaign for defamation. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I love it. It's it's absolutely. I mean, you look at what they tried to portray him at what he tried, what they portrayed the uh, uh, New York Post. That's what they portrayed me at at the Hill, saying that I was a conspiracy theorist. Every single fact from 2019 forward that has been reported about Hunter Biden has been affirmed. And quite frankly, we were, we were off. It's a lot worse than what we thought about when we all started reporting. But I, I think uh, uh, Jean-Paul has gone through so much uh, of torment, people threatening him, ruining his business that uh, it doesn't surprise me that he would take this action and, and seek a tort and put the, uh, the Biden's truth on a trial. Because at the end of the day, all the corruption aside, the one thing that is still very present in Americans' minds is Joe Biden looked into that camera and said, my son didn't do anything wrong. I knew nothing about it. I wasn't involved. All three of those statements we now know to be categorically false. And when a politician looks into that camera and assures the American public something uh, and they later find out that it's uh, not true, it often comes with an extraordinary uh, blowback. And I think that midterm elections are the beginning of that blowback, uh, certainly not only rejecting his honesty and corruption, but also the effect of his policies on the American economy and on American safety and security. So uh, people are going to remember what he said in the camera. And I think over the next two years with congressional Republicans potentially in charge of uh, committees, we're going to get a lot more proof of just how much Joe Biden is lying to us. You know, I feel like the conspiracy theorists are winning. Like if yeah. you go back in the last like seven years and look at the 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 news items that were called conspiracy theorists or theories or and people who promoted them or wrote about them, conspiracy theorists. I mean, we have a great track record. We have a better track record than they do. You know, um, their news turned out to actually be conspiracy theories and our conspiracy theories actually turned out to be news. So, um, yeah. I just want to go on the record saying that we know who is w- right and who is wrong on on this stuff. Um, so Durham, Julie and I want to talk to you about the Durham investigation. And I'm remembering back when Barr appointed Durham and a lot of us were very hopeful, perhaps undeservedly. Um, but we were very hopeful that John Durham, who we were assured was just like a straight arrow and he was all business. Um was going to get to the bottom of the Russia collusion hoax, how it started, who was involved in it. And I guess there would be justice uh, to these people who, to these uh, malefactors who were engaged in illegal activities and also violating the civil rights of their targets. And it seems like he went out with a whimper and not a bang. 
So what's the latest with Durham? Um, Where do you see it going now at this point? Yeah, listen, I think at the end of the day, we got a great narrative from John Durham, but not a lot of accountability. And I think one of the things we all in America are going to have to grapple with is, is it possible in in an extraordinarily divided America to get honest verdicts in cities like Washington, D.C. and New York, where the electorate is 60, 70, 80, in the case of D.C., 90 percent liberal and, and Democrat. And I think you look back at the Sussman trial, where the evidence of Sussman lying was compelling and, and real. And the the grand uh, the jury forewoman said, yeah, he probably lied. We just didn't think it was worth our time. In other words, my politics was substituted for the factual evidence. I think that environment uh, has taken off uh, of the table a lot of the potential criminal elements that uh, or, or punishments that John Durham might have pursued. And you look at the case of, I think at the end of the day, I watched him perform at this trial and I came away thinking one thing, he was willing to blow the case uh, and give the jurors an excuse to acquit Danchenko so he could tell us elements of the story that have been suffocated by the intelligence bureaucracy. And so he loaded up these two trials with extraordinary bombshells. Hillary Clinton approved uh, releasing the Russia collusion narrative to the public, even though she wasn't sure it was true. Uh, Christopher Steele couldn't prove his dossier even when he was offered a million dollars. Danchenko was put on the FBI's payroll uh, as an informant for three years, paid more than $200,000, even though the FBI thought one, he was tied to Russian intelligence and two had repeatedly lied to him. Uh, uh, Charles Dolan played a major role in spreading the uh, Russia collusion story, and he lied to the sources about the most sensational story that everybody ran with. Uh, and uh, the FBI didn't care that he was the source, didn't even want to look at, didn't want to interview him. Why? Because Charles Dolan led right back to the same people that were paying Christopher Steele, and that is the, the Clinton campaign. And so I think he. I think he made a decision uh, that securing convictions in New York and D.C. were going to be impossible. So he would use these two forums to uh, highlight a couple of people's bad behavior and tell us a long term narrative. And part of the mandate that Bill Barr gave him was that um, there would be uh, to get to the bottom of the truth. We got a lot of truth out of these trials, but we got zero accountability. Danchenko walks, Sussman walks and all the FBI players. Now we know what they did but they walk without much further recrimination other than their terminations or resignations from the FBI. So it is a frustrating circumstance. What's next? We're going to get a report from Durham that I think will be full of more jaw-dropping revelations like the ones we got during the trial. And then I think it's time uh, for a lot of smart people are saying this. So a lot of people saying uh, the Republicans are committed to creating a church committee like investigation, like what happened in the seventies when the abuses of J Edgar Hoover and the CIA were, first exposed, I think there is growing momentum for an independent commission that would haul all of these people before Congress, force them to tell the truth, confront them with their evidence, and and impugn their their reputations, their integrity, and the way they ran the FBI. And I think that's going to be the last accountability we're going to get. We're not going to get any further accountability in the criminal courts. And that, uh, of course, is extremely frustrating to say the least to this side. John, I have a question for you. I was talking about this with someone yesterday. Do you think that Durham went to a DC grand jury with 
bigger crimes against the actual perpetrators of this conspiracy, but could not get an indictment. Do you think we'll find out anything like that? Have you heard anything like that? It's, uh, we have not, uh, but we saw activity that would be very consistent with pursuing a larger conspiracy case. We saw activities in witnesses of people going before the grand jury, people I know of before the grand jury, uh, that had nothing to do with Sussman and Danchenko, which tells us that he clearly was trying to compel evidence of other crimes and other activity and behavior. It's entirely possible. One of the things I have heard, not not specifically that uh, there were indictments they couldn't seek, but that the fact that the D.C. and uh, New York jury polls were so tainted, so uh, seemingly immune and scoffing to the wrongdoing of the FBI, that it really changed the strategy of the Durham case. That I have heard. Whether uh, an, an attempt at an indictment was made and failed, we don't. I don't have proof of that one way or the other. But I did see people go before the grand jury who didn't appear to have anything to do with Danchenko or Sussman, which means he clearly was investigating some sort of other crimes. And we know, you know listen, we know from the trial, there's going to be some more personnel actions, right? We're going to see Brian Auten is facing suspension, the intelligence analyst who played a role in all of the Russia collusion stuff and also uh, in trying to convince the FBI that the Hunter Biden, the very real Hunter Biden story was Russian disinformation, according to Grassley, Chuck Grassley, we have that information now. He's facing suspension, not termination, but suspension. We'll probably see some more accountability uh, in, on the administrative side, but I think most conservatives felt like there was a compelling case for criminality, and uh, and uh, and inside the FBI, inside the Justice Department, it doesn't appear they're going to get that sort of justice out of this investigation. Well, it's not just it, it's not just important like for conservatives. It it it's the way the system polices itself. That is, right? there needs to be some reason for people not to do this again. And the fact that Durham's been at this for what three years, four years, yeah. Um, for this long and of course this is expensive this costs money and we may know more which is great i mean we we need to kind of know what happened but the fact that nobody is being criminally punished for criminal behavior um is is really problematic and i know you mentioned the church commission and maybe that republicans would you know look it's a camp it's campaign season right now I don't yeah. believe anything these people say, right? They know what the base wants. They know what people are angry that we obviously have two tiers of justice where That's Steve right. Bannon is supposed to go to jail for six months, but, you know, Danchenko he could that's fine and of course the seventh floor of the FBI also we're going to just look the other way on all that. Um but it there has to be consequences and there has to be like a change and we can have a commission and we can have hearings and there people can write letters. But, yeah. you know, you, you cannot have a country where there are two tiers of justice. Go ahead, Julie. Well, I think just having watched all the January 6th legal activity in Washington, D.C., obviously a grand jury is made up of the same people who sit on these regular trial juries. So, um, in, you know, you have people charged with conspiracy being locked up now for 21, 22 months denied bail for a bogus conspiracy that did nothing related to the Capitol protest, but yet you have all this evidence of a legitimate conspiracy to defraud the country. Um, I think one thing that Republicans have to do, aside from a church committee-ish 
uh, investigation is something about moving political trials out of Washington, D.C. Yeah. That has to be done. Uh, Part of it is shutting down the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Why would we continue to fund prosecutors who are going after us? It's it's absolute madness. Um, But these these trials and, of course, the judges on the D.C. District Court have denied every single change of venue motion, even though now DOJ is undefeated in D.C. jury trials for January 6th defendants. These people have been found guilty on every single count, every single defendant in record time getting jail time for nonviolent felonies like obstruction. Meanwhile, you have these criminals, the Russiagate criminals, get away scot-free only because this happened in Washington, D.C. If you would move it to, say, Grand Rapids, where the Whitmer trial happened, or anywhere else, there would be far different results um, for grand jury proceedings and obviously jury trials. But uh, that's, that's the problem. I think. Well, it's hardly a jury of their peers, right? I mean, the people you're supposed to have a jury of your peers. And I think you'd be hard pressed to say that the 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 DC community is a peer of like the rest of America. It's not. So Yeah. Listen, it's a real issue and and it's a constitutional issue because uh, the Constitution has always been interpreted to say that the crime should be tried in the place where the criminal activity occurred. And so these are big issues, right? They're big issues that have to be uh, thought about and debated. Uh, and and I think also there, there's a bigger cultural issue, which is that we appear to live, at least in certain communities, with a system now that professes commitment to law and order, but actually allows politics to uh, divert law and order from being adjudicated uh, with blindness and with even handedness. There's not any doubt that mo- the majority of Americans see a dual system of justice. And, you know, just think about this. We've been able to prosecute 800 uh, people associated with the January 6th riot in 18 months, but in four full years of an FBI investigating Hunter Biden, there hasn't been a single charge, even though I could make a case and a first law year law, first law year, a first year law student could make a clear prosecution against Hunter Biden from his own laptop and the evidence that's sitting out there. And uh, some of this is cultural. There used to be a time where Americans agreed it didn't matter your political stripe. If you did something wrong, you did the crime, you paid the time. Today, we see an enormous part, particularly of the Democratic Party, willing to try to say, I will exempt people on my side of the aisle because that's the political thing for me to do. And it starts with something like Vice President Kamala Harris helping people raise money to bail out known criminals who caused enormous damage to communities during the summer 2020 riots. And it has continued on. There's an us and them justice system right now that uh, that erodes the very fabric of our law and order society. And it, it's going to require a reckoning. There's a few ways this can happen. There could be an extraordinary reckoning in an election where the Democratic Party gets shrunk so much from power that they realize they went too far. Uh, another thing is there was an enormous opportunity during the Trump years. They they complained endlessly about the deep state, but did they shrink the deep state at all? No, they didn't. Did they clean out the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, though they knew there was a problem? No, they didn't. Bill Barr gave great speeches. Uh, Jeff uh, Sessions for years told about if he ever got his hands on the Justice Department, he changed it. They didn't change it one bit. The Justice Department changed them. They failed. And so Republicans, when they've had power, had the opportunity to solve institutions like the State Department uh, and the Justice Department and U.S. Attorney's Office, and they failed, and they don't get a right to whine 
when they miss that opportunity to clean those places up. The next crowd, if Republicans get put into power, they're going to get a two or four year window. If they don't deliver, they're going to lose a large part of the American public for a very long time to come. Well, I do think that um, in the case of Barr, I, we, we don't we're not fans of Barr here, but even but right away with Sessions, they immediately got Trump like tied up in some scandal with the DOJ, yeah. accusing him of stuff so that it made it impossible. And I'm not even saying he would do it anyway, but it would make it, it almost impossible for him to have any interaction with the DOJ just because it had become so politicized with these crazy Russia allegations that were, you know, our Pulitzer friends were screaming from their front pages. Um, Go ahead, Julie. Well, I mean, to your uh, point, John and Liz, we've talked about this extensively. When I report on January 6th, the biggest, the thing that I think enrages people the most is the double standard of justice and the handling of the 2020 riots, which of course were far more destructive, costly, deadly, really terrorized Americans for months, not for hours. Um, But again, still hearing and seeing Republicans who have very little plan outside of this flurry of letters that go nowhere. Um, You know, one of the most humiliating moments, I think, this year was Chris Ray bailing on a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, telling Chuck Grassley, you know, the the most senior Republican member of, of the Senate and the ranking member of Judiciary Committee for now, that he had to go. He had a plane to catch. Well, the plane turned out to be our plane that we paid for, <laughs> an FBI jet, and he wasn't going on business. He was going on a long weekend. So, and right now, and this is breaking again, DOJ is asking for $34 million just for the January 6th investigation and prosecution. They are pulling U.S. attorneys from, assistant U.S. attorneys from across the country to waste our time and money prosecuting and getting plea deals and convictions, mostly for the parading charge, the low-level petty offense that the D.C. District Court never deals with except related to the Capitol protest. This is a no-brainer. I mean, Republicans across the board should immediately vote against that. The FBI wants $537 million new money for next year alone. But when they have the opportunity like you said, John, such such a squandered opportunity, once in a generation, maybe two generation opportunity to rein in this out of control administrative state, especially uh, the Department of Justice, and they didn't do it. And so when they take control, are they going to pull the purse strings? Are they going to cut off funding? Are they going to say, no, we're not, fun- Lisa Monaco, Deputy Attorney General, we're not giving you millions of more dollars so you can hunt down and prosecute our own voters. That's not happening. Um, it just, there's there's not a lot of, you know, there's reason not to have a lot of confidence that a Republican House will do what needs to be done because it, it's drastic. You know, Glenn, Glenn, I had a great opportunity to talk to Glenn Beck uh, yesterday, I did an interview with him, and I really learned um, uh, his thinking, and I thought it was very insightful, which is there are, in the Republican Party now, Republicans who still believe in the institutions of big government, the Justice Department, the yeah. Education Department. And then there's this new generation, the generation of DeSantis and Carrie Lake, assuming if Carrie Lake wins, 
that realizes the institutions are the problem. They're much closer to Ronald Reagan's theory that government is the solution. It's the problem. But the party is torn between them. There's a huge difference between a Jeff Sessions and a Bill Barr and a Kerry Lake and a Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis saw a prosecutor adding up. He just fired him. He didn't care about the consequences. You're acting up, you know, by law, you're fired. Uh, he's getting rid of tenure in universities where Republicans have whined for 40 years about, oh, uh, universities are institutions of propaganda. But they didn't do a darn thing. Ron DeSantis is, is in the process of, with his legislature, removing tenure at state universities. It's really a question of, do you believe in big government and does it work? Or do you see the founding fathers' great distrust of big government and are you willing to break it down? George W. Bush, he he. He grew government more than nearly any president since FDR. Uh, Donald Trump had government grow on his watch. Our deficit grew enormously under Donald Trump. If we want to solve the problem, if we want to stop just screaming into the dark about this deep state bureaucracy, there's a really simple thing to do. Just shrink the living hell out of it. And I think it, there's a generation of Republicans coming up, by the way, uh, most of them Gen Xers that are of course. Uh, of course. Uh, that are going to going to take Reagan's mantra and they're going to, I think going to deliver on the promise that Reagan had trouble delivering on, which is truly shrinking the size of government. He slowed the size of government. He didn't shrink it. I think you're going to see we've seen uh, the, the the bureaucracy busting of Ron DeSantis in Florida. I think Carrie Lake means what she says and says what she means. And you'll see that there. And those are the sort of figures that in a couple of years, Americans might be able to pick from rather than uh, the George W. Bushes and Mike Pence's and others who still see merit in massive government bureaucracies that have continually let us down and treat, treated American people with extraordinary disparate um, outcomes. I think that's a good point. And I think it's something that because of people like Ron DeSantis um, and now Carrie Lake, and she's really growing on me. Like at first I wasn't a huge fan, but she's kind of, I think she really means what she's talking about is yeah. that some of these investigations, some of these cutting off funding needs to happen at the state level. I don't think there's any reason why Republican attorney generals can't investigate federal law enforcement and the abuse of that power, the FBI, U.S. Marshals, et cetera, that they have some oversight that we're not going to get out of Washington. Yeah, well, listen, you see it in the, these attorneys general. There's an enor enormously talented group of attorneys general fighting right now uh, to use federalism, states' rights, to shrink the Biden agenda. Republicans in Congress failed to stop a single part of the Biden agenda. But attorneys general like Jeff Landry and uh, in uh, Louisiana and uh, uh, Ken Paxton in Texas and Moody down in Florida and Eric Schmidt in Missouri, their lawsuits have had the most profound effect in putting roadblocks and in reversing many of Joe Biden's illegal orders from the uh, vaccine mandate on business to the failures to enforce immigration law. And that's what needs. I mean, the re congressional Republicans, all they do is write letters and hold press conferences. Uh, these guys went to court and they won time and time and time again. Most of the attorneys generals have won 85 to 90 percent of their challenges to the Trump uh, to the uh, Biden agenda. And I think that that's what is extraordinary. That next generation, those attorney generals become governor. Those governors become political candidates. There's a generation of Gen X Republican politicians right now that I think are willing to bust the system. 
and to deliver on the rhetoric that conservatives have always had. And that's where we need to watch for the solution. That's where the solution is going to come from. I agree. Um, I know Julie and I have always thought this way, and it was very nice to see those polls come out recently that really show that those of us born during that time and who lived during Reagan, but also during a time of freedom, you know, I mean, as kids, we were very free. Um, You know, we were, as I like to say, we were feral, you know, our parents were like, go see you later when the lights come back on, come back for dinner. Um, A lot of people were latchkey kids, right? They went home there. They made, they made dinner, they made their own food. They made the breakfast. They walked to school. We, you know, we, we didn't have a, phone like a caller basically where your parents could like track your location on a gps and so i think that we're very independent and so that kind of makes us puts us in a good position to really um see the the leviathan that these government institutions have become but i really do like the way beck put it and the way you put it is that there are these traditionalists that really just want to take the power control of the big car and not like blow it up which is more kind of in metaphorically speaking um for our doj friends that are certainly listening to this um that we want you know that they want to just control big government instead of get rid of it and i'm I'm, i want to be hopeful i guess i'm jaded just after seeing a lot of talk um especially from you know kevin mccarthy is probably going to be the next speaker of the house He's saying a lot of stuff. It sounds good, but he said it before. And, you know, I think that the way that our checks and balances systems are set up with a constitution, the House has power, even if the um, GOP doesn't win the Senate, which I think it's, it's a possibility, um, the, the, the House controls the purse strings. And Kevin McCarthy can just come out and say, we're not signing a budget, a CR, an omnibus, nothing that has any of this crap in it. And then just sit back and and that's it. And like we've seen politicians like Ron DeSantis, who's been rewarded. I mean, go back to his first campaign for governor. He barely won that against that drug addict dude who right. was found in that motel. He's ahead of Chris by at least 11 points right now. And he doesn't apologize and he he's proactive and he doesn't, he, he doesn't tread lightly. He just goes all in. And so, you know, I think if McCarthy were to come out and just say, we're not, that's it. And I think it's a win-win because, you know, if we shut the government down, then, Hey, that's awesome. We shut the government down. And if we come to an agreement, then we can pull some of the funding for the 87,000 IRS agents and this crazy climate garbage that we all signed on to in the American Rescue boondoggle and so on. I'll tell you a moment that I'd be watching for. This will be a bellwether of whether McCarthy is what he says he is now that he'll be the top guy in the food chain. You won't be able to blame anyone else. You can't blame Paul Ryan, anyone else. There's going to be a moment early on where the Freedom Caucus is going to try to force a vote on whether Congress will resurrect a thing called the Holman Rule. It's something that was created in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, and it allows Congress to defund an individual person, an individual program, an individual agency with a simple majority vote. And it was around in the 1800s in the aftermath, and it was designed then that if, if a Confederate sympathists had slipped into government, Congress could, without a very messy fight, just get rid of that person. It's called the Holman Rule. It's been around 
uh, Paul Ryan always said he was going to bring it back, and they voted it into power in 2017. They never used it, but it is the equivalent of a line item veto for Congress. And uh, very early on, if Kevin McCarthy doesn't allow a vote and allow for the Holman rule to be uh, in effect for the 118th Congress, then you're going to know that he's not serious. If he does, it creates uh, a line item capability for Congress that hasn't existed for more than a century. You can go in and say, uh, starting tomorrow, I'm defunding the corporate jet uh, for Chris Ray. So you can't take any more vacations when you should be sitting your butt in that chair answering our questions. I'm defunding the Russia counterintelligence analyst X because I don't think he did his job, honestly, and I'm not waiting for any more suspension appeals. It could have a profound effect in exacting narrow, swift punishment that starts to get the attention of people inside government. That is a bellwether. We're going to see it in January. If it happens, it sounds like an arcane thing, but it may be the single largest tool of power of the purse that this new Republican Congress could potentially use. If they don't pass it, then you know there's a problem uh, already in, in the new Congress. I have not heard of that. So that is very interesting and something that I think we should, as you know, commentators and reporters, and get the base fired up about that. Um, because I do think it's easy for them to throw their hands up, especially now in the minority, which, of course, is true that, well, we can't we have no authority. We have no power to do anything. You know, right. This is why we're writing letters. Um, but, you know, if if you and what you just cited, which we hadn't I hadn't heard about, maybe Liz has yeah. cite exactly the laws, the statutes that will give them the authority to do that, then they have no excuses. Right. That's right. Yeah, well, Andy Biggs has been leading the charge on this. He's uh, done a great job of describing on one of my shows. And uh, I've talked to more than two dozen members of Congress who love the idea. And if if McCarthy's serious, this is a powerful tool. You won't even have to shut down the government. You can literally just defund individual parts of it that you don't like and, uh, and, uh, and make a progress without all the big, giant, dramatic fights that uh, usually Republicans fold on. And so... It's an enormous tool. It's uh, It's been out there. It was actually uh, moved into position in 2017, but Paul Ryan whiffed on it. They just never went and used it. And I think it could be one of the more powerful battles at the start of the new Republican Congress. And if it gets into power, it could become a Ginsu knife that every day when a non— Here's one of the problems Republicans will have. They'll have witnesses like Steve Bannon uh, on the Democratic side who don't want to testify, right? You, I can guarantee you, just like they did in the— 2010 part when i was when i was uh writing about fast and furious they're not going to hold an eric holder in contempt they're going to let their people not get the same punishment as steve bannon that's right the holman the holman rule would allow someone who refuses to to testify before congress you can just simply say your salary is reduced to one dollar as of tomorrow until you provide testimony that's going to get people's attention julie you could make write a list of all the judges whose salaries should be cut to zero yes. or like, no, 50, I would do 50 cents, like not even a dollar. Just be like, <laughs> here's 50 cents for you. Yeah. Basically every judge on the DC district court. Um, John, aside from funding mechanisms, what documents would you want to see in a church committee type investigation or public hearings? What would interest you the most? Like where, where's the dirt? We saw plenty of it coming out of Durham, but where would you, what would you want to see? 
Yeah, listen, on Russia itself, uh, there is uh, the informant validation reports that will show exactly what the intelligence community ultimately determined about Christopher Steele, about uh, Stefan Halpert, about uh, Igor Danchenko. Uh, And I think there is an enormous amount of crosstalk that was occurring in the Russia investigation where the CIA, not John Brennan, John Brennan was fanning the baloney story on television, but the career people in the CIA, we know this from the declassified footnotes that Ratcliffe gave us, they were repeatedly warning the FBI, this was bogus, this is Russian intelligence, this is disinformation. If the FBI won't listen to its brethren in the CIA, we're right back to the era before 9-11. This isn't just about Russia alone. This is about our counterintelligence capabilities. Some of the things that came out in the trial of Danchenko mirror the very concerns that allowed Robert Hanson to slip by as one of Russia's greatest spies inside the FBI for two decades. You see FBI agents not listening to their analysts. There's an analyst who kept saying Danchenko is tied to Russian intelligence. You need to revalidate him. And they just ignored her, even though she had 20 plus years experience as a professional analyst. That's the same ignorance that allowed Robert Hanson to slip by. And then people years later, oh, I always had doubts about that guy. Uh, so there are much broader issues than just the Russia collusion case. In January 6th, I, I interviewed Steve Friend on the record for more than an hour. He's one of the whistleblowers who've gone public by name. And he lays out in great detail the concerns about uh, uh, agents raising sticks and Eighth Amendment concerns. I'd like to see that crosstalk. There are these field agents in Florida, and Arizona, and Ohio, Pennsylvania, who are being listed as the case agent on the January 6th defendant. When, in fact, they're not handling any aspect of the case. They're basically creating a fraud upon the court. And uh, and, uh, if that's going on, that means there's all this communication from the Washington field office of the FBI to the field offices around the country. Now, why did they construct it this way? According to Steve Friend, it was they constructed this idea that there would be agents falsely identified as the case agent when they weren't really in charge of the case so that they could make an argument that domestic extremism from conservatives was a massive statistical problem when, in fact, almost every domestic terrorism case in the FBI system right now stems from a singular event in Washington on January 6th. So not only are they juicing the statistics to get to, to hijack budget and create political perceptions, they're defrauding the court. An agent is listed as a court agent when he case agent when he's not. There's going to be an enormous amount of documentation going back and forth from headquarters to the field office on why they're doing this that could be extraordinarily uh, beneficial. And then I think confidential human sources. We, we know the problem in Russia, but what about yeah. how many confidential human sources are there on January 6th in Whitmer? How much entrapment was going on? Those are the big issues that we're going. You know, one of the most interesting voices right now is not a member of Congress, not a senator, not a House member. It is the former intelligence chief of the FBI, a guy named Kevin Brock, who believes in the FBI, believes it's a great agency, believes that it has completely lost its way and is cheating on its own roles in violating the civil liberties of Americans. This is one of their own G-men, 30 years in the job, first intelligence chief of the FBI. A voice like his on top on a blue ribbon panel could really guide the public through real findings, real consequences, and real solutions. And I, people should keep an eye on what he's doing. He is a, a, a sole dissenter in the FBI community. But I think he represents thousands of current and former agents that feel his way. And he could be a change agent in this debate as we go forward. 
Um, I think just to follow up on what you're saying about confidential human sources, because I've been reporting on this um, the last yes. couple of weeks, you know, this is $42 million a year average. It's probably higher since Horowitz issued his report on the malfeasance of that program. Right. What blew my mind, John, and you probably knew this when I was covering both Whitmer Fednapping trials, is that informants are paid in cash. They are. And there's yeah. no accountability. I mean, these FBI handling agents could not explain really any documentation, a paper trail for their informants. What the, the lead informant in Whitmer, who is compensated at least $60,000 for seven months work, handed an envelope of $23,500 in December of 2020, which there's not really supposed to be a reward for entrapping people and getting them arrested. So here he is two months later, getting this huge envelope filled with cash. He's a truck driver for the Postal Service. He made more in seven months as an informant than he made um, an entire year's salary. I think that that is such a key part of exposing and, and informing the American people what this agency is all about, how they hire, in many cases, these degenerates um, that are paid cash with no accountability and they violate the terms of their agreements. In Whitmer, they were getting their targets stoned, then they were recording the conversations. One informant slept in the same hotel room as her target. Um, they violated the rules over and over. Did the judge care? No. Did the FBI care? No. Um, but I think these uh, informants are a huge part of, of the problem. No, there's no doubt. The, the 2019 Inspector General report by Michael Horowitz lays out a program that is completely out of control, without accountability, without uh, vetting of sources, particularly long-term confidential human sources. Dan Jenko was a source for three years. He would qualify as a long-term uh, confidential source. You, you go back and you look that before Christopher Steele was brought in by the FBI with Hillary Clinton paying him, to uh, help contrive the uh, Russia collusion case, there were warnings from the CIA that he, need to be, he needed to be revalidated, that the, the CIA believed he had been penetrated through his contacts with some Russian oligarchs by Russian intelligence. Nobody followed up on that advice. No one looked at his Delta file and even vetted him out. There is a level of carelessness with confidential human sources that is very disturbing. And I think a, a second part, one of the great revelations in the uh, Danchenko trial that should disturb all of us is the acknowledgement that at multiple times in handling Danchenko, the FBI agent handling him instructed him to destroy evidence, to wipe his phone, to get rid of his evidence of his contacts with his sources and, and uh, Christopher Steele. When did the FBI get into the business of destroying evidence? Um, and when did they get into the idea that it's okay to uh, hide the omission, uh, the omit the evidence that would show that maybe what the FBI is doing is wrong? These are deeply troubling revelations, and the mainstream media and most members of Congress yawned through them this last couple of weeks, except for the Epoch Times and ourselves and a couple others. Most people have not really commented on the extraordinary malfeasance that that uh, John Durham laid in front of the American public about the FBI confidential human source program. So if these guys are serious, that's something that a commission can do. It can take, uh, get really respected people who actually care about the future of law enforcement, not, not about the future election they're about to run in, 
and and come up with meaningful recommendations like what we got from the 9-11 Commission, like we got from the church committee. I don't think a traditional committee of Congress, uh, when the fundraising cycle and the reelection cycle starts the moment you start your new job, uh, is can solve this problem. But a Blue Ribbon Commission with extraordinary powers and backed up maybe by the Holman rule of Congress, they could actually not only get the truth, but actually start to create real solutions so that IG reports that repeatedly flag the same problem don't fall like a tree in the forest. They actually result in a change. And uh, the, the 1970s church committee, a lot of us don't remember because we were kids back then, but it led to some of the most sweeping law enforcement and civil liberty protection changes ever in our country's history. It can it can be successful if the right people are put on it. So let's talk about these um, FBI sources or whistleblowers who are coming out and talking like um, Mr. Friend. And I know that there are more. I just think Jim Jordan said there was another one who's going to testify or speak. Um, What what prompted these people? I think I read somewhere there was like 24, 25 of them. There may be more. And I'm really happy that people are coming forward. I'm just shocked. It's only 24 because the FBI is a massive organization. And if they're reeling in um, agents from around the, around the country to sort of juice up the appearance of, you know, this crisis that we're having with domestic terrorists, that more would come forward and object to being kind of used and really to terrorize um, American citizens. So what, what's the latest with that? What, what do you, what prompted did these people just have enough or does everyone have a different story? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I know right now is there are 20 FBI agents that have made protected disclosures to Congress and four or five that are in negotiation to make protected disclosures to Congress. So we will be up at about two dozen very soon when, when the first protected disclosures from these new four or five come forward. I learned a long time ago that for every whistleblower there is in the FBI uh, that comes forward, there are 30 or 40 that are backing him up but unwilling to come forward on their own. When Fred Whitehurst, uh, the most famous of all FBI whistleblowers, came out about all the cheating that was going on in the FBI lab, and you know he went through enormous torment. They, they did everything they could to shame him, take his salary away from him, harm him, psychologically abuse him. He prevailed. And, and, and we later learned that the FBI lab, which was supposed to be the premier crime lab in America, was a cesspool of fake science. Uh, I ended up winning some major awards on one version of that fake science called bullet lead analysis that the FBI knew for 40 years. But when, the, when uh, Fred Whitehurst's allegation finally broke through and he got treated with the uh, seriousness that his allegations warranted, all of a sudden, you saw 30, 40, 50 members of the lab saying, oh, yeah, no, this has been a problem. We've all known this is bad science. I think this this group of 20, if they can get treated with the seriousness that their allegations deserve, there'll be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 people that in the inspector general investigations and in the congressional investigations will back them up. Steve Friend told me in the lengthy interview I did uh, uh, over the weekend and then again on Monday on television, that uh, almost every one of his colleagues who are working on the January 6th investigation in the field offices, not in Washington, where there seems to be these elitist politicians running, masquerading as agents. But in the field offices, he hasn't found a single agent that he was working alongside of who didn't think what was going on was abusive, 
in, in violation of the FBI rules. If he's right about that, let's suppose he's only 50% right. You're talking about hundreds of agents who believe what's currently going on in the FBI is wrong. Tapping into that in, uh, can be an enormously powerful army uh, that could lead to change. But uh, we'll see if Congress has the wherewithal to do it, the stamina to do it, the determinedness to do it. A lot of these investigations ride the surface and they don't they don't give all, they don't have the determination to get to the bottom. They let the FBI run the clock out on them, like uh, what happened with the declassified documents that Donald Trump declassified but never got released. So we have to see whether there's a better A game of committee chairman this year. I've been very impressed in my private conversations with James Comer, who's likely to be the House Oversight Committee chairman, and Jim Jordan, likely to be the Judiciary Committee chairman, that they have a plan that isn't just surface hearings. It aren't Lindsey Graham surface hearings. These are deep-rooted, long, hard investigations with uh, tenacity and, and the willingness to make people pay if they don't cooperate. Uh, so we may have two chairmen that, that do it the right way. In the Senate, the only guy, the only two people I've seen have any success is Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson if they get reelected. I think those two plus Jordan and Comer, we might get some real investigations for the first time in 20 years. I also think they need to hear from the victims of this FBI abuse. You know, I would. Yes. They should include the two men who have been acquitted um, in the Whitmer fednapping. You have to credit Liz with that. Fednapping's everywhere now, and it's because she's <laughs> with it. Mine. I love it. Um, Great line. These two men and how they were entrapped, how their lives are destroyed, even though they were acquitted after their attorneys, their public defenders who were amazing, convinced a jury they had been set up by the FBI. But, you know, they can't go on with their lives. They are the one guy who was arrested at his workplace. I communicate with him. He still can't find a job. He's like, because they just Google me, even though I'm innocent, they still don't want any part of me. So to get those two guys to tell the American people what happened with them. And of course, all the victims of January 6th, people who have been subjected to these SWAT armed raids at pre-dawn for, you know, an obstruction charge or a parading charge. Um, I just know from my reporting, I think that some of the more compelling um, coverage that, that my readers or the American people want to want to see because it really gives a face to uh, what this Department of Justice and FBI are doing. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not a victimless crime. You know, people's lives are ruined. I mean, in the case of J6, how many how many of the J6ers have committed suicide, Julie? At least three that we know oh. of. Um, I think there was another guy who ran his motorcycle into a car that hasn't been listed as a suicide, but it seems like it was. But and it's not only the three men who have committed suicide that we know of. After those suicides are reported, I hear from so many January 6th defendants, even people accused of misdemeanors, like, I understand. I've thought about committing suicide, too. What this government is doing to me is bad. What the media is doing is even worse. You know, they've lost their families, their businesses. They've been bankrupted with legal fees. Uh, you know, they've lost friends. They've been turned in by friends. They've been turned in by relatives. Um, and this media just will not give up on it. And so what's even more heartbreaking for me is to hear from these people who are like, yeah, I get it. I've thought about killing myself, too, but I've got, you know, young kids and, you know, I, I can't leave my wife to 
you know, raise them alone and get through that. But um, yeah, the, the American people and these lawmakers need to hear the stories of what is happening to these people and, you know, point the fingers at who's responsible, not just Merrick Garland, but um, Lisa Monaco, Matthew Graves, the uh, D.C. U.S. attorney, uh, Biden campaign uh, advisor, whose wife is a radical left wing uh, head of a, this radical left wing um, women's non for profit nonprofit in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, this is the couple who's responsible for this. And then, of course, Chris Ray and Stephen D'Antuano, uh, as we know, is the bridge between the Whitmer fednapping hoax and January 6th. So um, they need to we need to call them out and, and hold them responsible for what what they are doing, destroying people's lives over politics. It's a very there's a very poignant moment in my interview with uh, agency friend where he says that what he's come to conclude is that the FBI and the Justice Department designed the January 6th investigation so that the process is the punishment, meaning even yep. before you get a prison sentence, you are put through such hell, your bank accounts are drained, that you're punished even if you end up being found innocent. And I think that what uh, you what we've been talking about is really a system now that has found out you can weaponize the law enforcement process and crush, use the crushing power of the state to ruin a person's life even when the evidence doesn't warrant such a criminal conviction. And I think we have to come to grips with that. It, is, uh, it isn't just happening in January 6th. I saw how much pain and suffering my lawyers went through in a bogus Ukraine investigation. Uh, Joe and Victoria, I've seen uh, uh, Governor, uh, you know, General Mike Flynn and all the things we found out he went through when it turns out the FBI never thought he committed a crime ever. These are just really serious questions and, and we have to begin to rein in the concept that government can punish you just by its pursuit. Well, <clears throat> that is our hour and that went by very quickly. Wow, sure did. Um, <laughs> Before we go, um, John, we asked some of our guests this question. <clears throat> it's probably oh, no. the most important. Yeah, we're asking oh, it. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's probably the most important question you'll ever be asked in any media appearance <laughs> or probably in your life. Uh-oh. Here's the question. Who is the better lead singer for Van Halen? Is it David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? Oh, that's a tough one. You're asking me to pick between two legends. Uh, I'm a little more partial to Sam Hager, but it's just a taste <laughs> thing the way my ears work. And uh, by the way, I don't hear well anymore, so maybe that can be it. But I, I think Sam Hager I, has a slight edge, but it's a really unfair question. Yeah, no. You answered it correctly. Thank you. <laughs> Nobody says Sam Hager except John Solomon and Julie Kelly. That's it. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> All right. Should we ask him the other 80s music question after? OK, the, you can the, ask. Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, boy. Go okay. on. Depeche Mode or Def Leppard? Oh, Def Leppard. That's not even, yes! that even a dispute. <laughs> yeah. Not even a dispute. Yeah, that's not even a fair question either. That one. That's not in the same class. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. Liz, I'm, even, uh, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. Sorry, Liz. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a fun interview. I've enjoyed this a lot. Great. Well, we, Thanks so much, John. Yes. And Great honor. 
Thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed yet, we are Happy Hour with Julie and Liz on iTunes. And Julie, are we going to be here next week? We are not because it is my 25th anniversary next week. So I'll be out of town with the luckiest man in the world. 25 (laughs) years of pure joy married to me. All right. So we will not be here next week, but we'll be here in two weeks. So have a great week and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week.